Open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. We will be in Ephesians just for two more Sundays. This Sunday and next, I plan on on, um, finishing the book of Ephesians next week. So I look forward to to that. I I don't know about y'all, but I have loved this teaching through Ephesians. It's been an incredible blessing to me. I think it has become my favorite book, maybe with the possible exception of the Gospel of John. Um, And we're now, of course, approaching the end of that book. And we've been over these last couple months, really, talking about Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare, and the full armor of God. Paul wrote earlier in, in the scriptures that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, we don't wage war in a physical sense or with physical weapons, but we wage war spiritually and with spiritual weapons because we recognize that the battle that we fight is not against other people, but it's against spiritual forces of darkness that come against us and the system that is in place in this world. And Paul has given us a great deal of explanation in Ephesians chapter 6 about what these spiritual weapons of our warfare are like. And we've spent a, a great deal of time covering these in detail. And today we come to the last piece of this full armor of God that Paul has been writing about. So for the sake of context, though we've already covered these verses in great detail, we'll begin reading again this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, in which Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are fighting a spiritual battle. I'm going to pause right there and then I'm going to pick it up right there in verse 13 in a moment or two, but I want to give just a, a, a moment of explanation over these passages, particularly for those of us that haven't been here through this entire study. We have an enemy, right? We have an enemy and our enemy is the enemy of God. And the reason that he is our enemy is not because he has anything against us personally, but it's because he hates God. And he wants to destroy everything and anything that God cares about. So because we as believers have turned our backs on the world and have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our allegiance in this war has shifted. We are no longer on the side of the forces of darkness, but we are on the side of the King of Peace. Amen? We are part of the kingdom of his dear son. We're part of Christ's body. Ephesians, the first three chapters tell us about all of the amazing things that God has done for us. It talks about the fact that that he has made us part of his family, that he has made us heirs with Christ. It talks about the fact that he 
wants us to dwell with him. It talks about his incredible love for us that was demonstrated in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It talks about the fact that salvation was God's idea, that he sent his son to die for us. Okay, In Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks of the fact that we, all of us, every person on the face of this earth, if we are saved, we are saved how? By grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's when God blesses you in ways you don't deserve, right? And that we receive that grace of God by faith because we believe what he has said. And that faith and that grace, that, that's not even from us. It's a gift that God gives us. We're not saved by good works or by doing good things or by going to church every Sunday or giving our 10% tithe or not doing these other things and doing only these other things. We're not saved by our works, okay? We're saved by God's grace because he sent his son Jesus to die for us. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. You see, there's not any one of us who deserved salvation. We all deserved judgment. And so we're sort of all in this together, aren't we? We are all together recipients of the gift of God's grace that is available to us through Jesus Christ, his son. But it doesn't stop there. It says there in Ephesians chapter two that we are saved unto good works, that God prepared in advance for us to walk in them, okay? So what that means is we are not saved by the good things we do, but being saved, there are good things that God has for us to do. So we do these things not out of a necessity for salvation, but rather in response to the fact that we have been saved, You see, we do them not out of obligation, but out of gratitude for the sacrifice that he made. In other words, if Jesus Christ died for me, then it is a small thing for him to ask me to live for him. Amen? And that's what Paul is talking about when he says that we as Christians are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In other words, because of everything that God has done for you, We have a name, a family name to live up to. And because we have this family name to live up to, because we are representatives of God in Jesus Christ in this world, he wants us to conduct ourselves appropriately. He wants us to do the right thing. He wants us to love others as we love ourselves. He wants us to bring glory and honor to his name through the example that we set for other people of what it is to be a believer, okay? So we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. One of the ways that he talks about us walking worthy is found in Ephesians 5, verse 21, where he says, submitting yourselves unto one another in the fear of God. And then he talks about how we are to do that. Husbands, you're to submit to one another by loving your wives. Wives, you're to submit to, another, to one another by respecting your husbands. Children, you're to, to submit to one another by obeying your parents. Parents, you're to submit to one another by not provoking your children to wrath. Employees, you are to submit to one another by being a good employee even when nobody's watching. And bosses, you're to submit to one another by not treating your employees unfairly, but by giving them their wages when they are due. So we all have a way in which we are to express this idea of putting other people first, right? 
That's what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, to walk in love, to walk in peace, to walk in truth. And all of these things are are spoken of in, in, in this epistle, in this letter. But you see, there's someone, Satan, who wants to diffuse the explosion of our love for God. He, he doesn't want us to, to fulfill the purpose for which God has called us, right? He doesn't want us to do that. So he wants to short circuit us. He wants to cut our legs out from under us. Uh, once we're saved, he can't touch our soul, but he sure will try to steal our effectiveness for the kingdom. And he does this through temptation. He does this through condemnation. He does this by looking at you and saying, you're worthless. Who cares about you anyway? Who's gonna believe you anyway? Who's gonna listen to you anyway? Remember that sin you committed last month or last year or yesterday or this morning? Yeah, that means you're no longer useful to God. Those are the things he tells us. You know, Satan is the first one to tempt you to sin, but then as soon as you do, he's the first one to condemn you for having done it. And he does that so that you won't turn to God for grace, mercy, and forgiveness, so he won't be able to work in and through your life and to use you for his kingdom and his glory. But you see, we understand through the scriptures that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, We understand through the scriptures that Satan is a liar and a murderer. Jesus said the enemy comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And that is Satan's desire for you. So if we are wandering through a world like that, when Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy in our lives, we need to remember what Jesus said right after that. He said, but I have come that they might have life and that more abundantly. Amen. So if he has come to give us life, if he has come to use us and to work through us for his glory, then we need to recognize that we are engaged in a battle. And if we are going to be engaged in a battle, then we must be fully equipped for that battle. And that is what Paul is talking about as he begins here in Ephesians chapter six, verse 13, he says, because you have this spiritual enemy who wants to undermine your effectiveness, who wants to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy the work of your your life for God, therefore, because you have this enemy, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, and here we come into the armor, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation. Now, all of these we've covered, oops, sorry. All of these we've covered week after week over these last couple of months. And now we come to our text for today and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now he goes on to tell us what we're to do with that, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So what 
is this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What does that mean exactly? Well, first of all, we've talked about all of this other armor and all of these other pieces of armor are for defense, right? They're for defense. They are to protect you against the attacks of the enemy. But a sword is an offensive and a defensive weapon. So this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is for our defense and for our offense. In other words, it is something that we are to use. And it says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So this is something that is not a state of being for us right? With the first group of armor, when we were talking about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, those are all past tense, having the breastplate of righteousness and and all of that. So those are things that we we wear all the time, right? But when he says, take up the shield of faith and and take up the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, he's talking about the weapons of our warfare that we need in specific situations for specific purposes. So we are to take them up. So the sword that is being referred to here, when you think of a sword, you might think of, I don't know, maybe Excalibur or, or maybe some big broadsword, you know, or some big two-handed thing that's like that. Is that what comes to your mind when you think of a sword? That's not the kind of sword that this is talking about. The word that's used for sword here in the Greek doesn't matter for us this morning, but it's a small, short sword that the Roman soldier would wear at their belt, and it was for close hand-to-hand personal combat. It was for up-close fighting, okay? And so it's a short sword that they were using, and that's what is being referred to here. The word of God is like that sword. It's it's for that one-on-one personal battle that we fight against the enemy each and every day. So when he talks about the sword of the spirit, he is talking about the word of God. He says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now we have a tendency to think of it like this, you know? We say, I've got my sword with me, right? I've got my sword. But you see, in English, we have a word for word. But in Greek, they don't just have a word for word. They have a couple different words for word. And we're going to talk about those today. I want to suggest to you that this is not the sword that Paul is referring to. And you're going to say, what? What are you saying, Pastor Ken? Are you saying that my Bible is is not my sword? No, I'm not saying that exactly, but I am kind of saying that. This, what I hold in my hand, is not what is being referred to in this verse. When he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I know some of you, especially those that are more educated in the scriptures, are probably scratching your heads right now saying, where's he going with this? Because I don't understand what he's trying to say. Bear with me. We'll get there. Okay. So as we look at the scriptures, I want you to recognize that they are the scriptures, right? We call this the word, and it is the word, but a more accurate word to describe what this is would be the scriptures. Jesus said to the Pharisees, 
you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. The word that he used when he said the scriptures is the word graphe. And graphe means the writings. Uh, turn with me to Second uh, Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, all scripture, and the word there is graphe, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen? So this, as a whole, is the graphe. It's the scriptures. And the word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, for take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the word word there is not graphe. Now, the graphe contains that word to which he refers, but it is not specifically the graphe. You see, because I say all this because I want to challenge an idea that people have. People have this idea, and we as Christians are very guilty of this. We have this idea that as long as I carry this thing around with me, I'm fine. In fact, in some circles and in some times, the bigger the Bible, the better. You remember those days? Man, you had this big old thing under your arm. The bigger the Bible, the better, because, man, that's, I got a big old sword, you know? And if you had one of those little pocket New Testaments, you'd call it maybe a switchblade or something, you know? <laughs> so we would refer to it as though it were some physical thing. And we'd carry it around with us and we'd say, man, this is my sword. And, 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 and you know, that, that was a reverence that we had for the physical thing, okay? Now, that's good. It's good to have reverence for the Bible. I'm not trying to argue against that. But I'm going to tell you something. You could carry this thing around all day long and it's not going to really do you any good. It's not good enough to have the Bible in your hand. You need to have the Bible in your heart, amen? So we need to take this graphe and we need to transfer it over into something else which is called the logos. So we need to take the graphe and we need it to become in our hearts and in our lives the logos. Now what is the logos? Most of you who have been through Bible studies or, or Sunday sermons for any amount of time are familiar with the phrase or the term rather logos, right? Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you. In John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Nothing was made that was made. In him, 
that is in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. What do you declare? If you declare something, what does that mean? If you declare something, it means that words have come out of your mouth, right? So Jesus is the word or the declaration of God. He is the divine expression of God. And the word logos means the expression of thought, not the mere name of an object, as an embodying conception or idea. So it isn't the writings themselves, it is the conception or the idea that the writings convey. That's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. It is what the word communicates that matters. It's what the word communicates that is the divine expression of God's thought. And Jesus was and is the perfect expression of God. We find that in several other places in scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter one. In Hebrews chapter one, verse one, We read God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus is the express image of the father, so much so that he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Let's turn to, uh, to John for that testimony. John chapter 14 little bit of a Bible drill this morning. Sorry to make you turn so many pages. John chapter 14. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. You know, we've seen the picture, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, haven't we? You've seen that? Almost everybody has seen that, right? You ever wonder why they're all sitting on the same side of the table? I'm just really, never mind. It was... I thought it was funny, but, but you know, they're sitting here at the table. They're, they're, they're having this Passover meal together 
And, and, and Jesus is, is he's going to wash their feet to demonstrate what it is to serve, right? He, he's about to, to break the bread and, and to, to give them the wine and to say, this is my body which is broken for you and this is my blood which is shed for the remission of your sins. And, and so he's, he's about to, to institute all that. And in the middle of all this, in the middle of all this, he breaks the news to them that he is going away. I'm leaving, he said. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And, and, and they're not taking it particularly well. And Jesus says here in chapter 14, verse 1 of the Gospel of John, he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. We're looking forward to that, aren't we? Amen. He says that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, um, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? You see, I love Thomas. He was always honest, you know. They call him Doubting Thomas. I'd rather call him Honest Thomas because he, he's always honest about what he thinks and, and his confusion. A lot of people, when they're confused, they just kind of be quiet about it and they kind of sit there and they just nod. Uh-huh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, not really. Well, why are you nodding? Well, you know, I don't want you to know that I don't know what you're talking about, right? But Thomas, he's like, um, excuse me, What? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't, you haven't told us where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus replies to him and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus is saying, in no uncertain terms, that all roads do not lead to God. All roads do not lead to God. There is one road that leads to God, and Jesus has said that he is that road. He said, I am the way. He doesn't even say, I tell the truth. He says, I am the truth. And he is the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But you know what the beautiful thing about that? Everyone can come to the Father through him. We know the way to the Father. We know the way to heaven. You want to know the way to heaven? It's through Jesus Christ. He is the only way to heaven. There's no other way. No amount of confession, no amount of penance, no amount of good works can get you there. The only thing that can get you there is faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you don't have to take my word for it. Jesus said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. He's like, hey, you know what? Nothing else matters. Just show us the Father, Jesus. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus is the divine expression. He is the logos of God. And The scriptures, the graphe, contains the logos, the divine expression, the thoughts, ideas, and intents of the Father. But we're still not at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Because when Paul writes, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the word that he uses for word in that verse is not graphe, and it is not logos. So what is it? It's rhema. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. It's a different word for our word, word. But what does the word, word mean when it's used in the form of rhema? Well, Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament puts it this way. Rhema denotes that which is spoken what is uttered in speech or writing. It is the utterance of God's word. It is the speaking forth of a particular part of the scripture for a particular situation. When the enemy comes against you with a temptation, you don't just pick up the graphe and throw it at him. When the enemy comes against you with a temptation, you don't simply think about the divine expression or the logos that you have internalized. When the enemy comes against you with a temptation, you need to speak the word against him. If you don't believe me, you don't want to take my advice for how to use this weapon of your warfare, which is the sword of the spirit. Let's take a look at how a master swordsman used his sword of the spirit. Turn with me to Matthew chapter four. And actually we'll back up just a little bit into chapter three. In Matthew chapter three, we see how Jesus, the one who is the author of the word, right? how he employed the weapon that was indeed his own creation. How did Jesus use the sword? You want to know how to use a sword? Look at the one who made it and see how he uses it, right? So let's see how Jesus used his sword. In verse 13 of chapter 3, we read that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And John the Baptist, tried to prevent Jesus. In other words, he said, no, no, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, when Jesus was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Amen? There's John the Baptist. He's out in the Jordan River and he's calling all these people to him and sinners are coming from miles around and they're getting baptized and then all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And John's like, what are you doing here? So far as I know, you've never committed any sin that you would need to repent of. John was his cousin. They, 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 he, he's looking at him, he's saying, you know, I need you to baptize me, not the other way around. But Jesus says, you know what? This needs to happen. So let's allow this for all righteousness. So John baptizes Jesus, and as he comes up out of the water, the heavens open, right? The heavens open, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and it alights upon him, and it remains upon him. And there's a voice from heaven. By the way, we have the Trinity right there, right? Father speaking from heaven, Spirit descending like a dove upon the Son. Father, Spirit, Son, all right there. And we hear the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was because of this that John knew that this was the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had come baptizing, looking for this very sign because the Lord had told him, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending as a dove, that's the one. And that's how John knew that Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God. But have you ever noticed that it's right after a, 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 an intense spiritual experience that the enemy likes to come in and attack right away because he wants to try to take away what God is trying to instill into your heart. You see, you'll hear a great sermon. Oh man, that was, I really, that was something that really moved my heart. You go away and you have lunch and something happens. You get into an argument or maybe you have a fender bender. Something happens and all of a sudden you're not thinking about that word that you just heard anymore. You're distracted by all of the difficulties and trials of life and those birds are just coming and snatching away that seed that's been planted. You see, the enemy doesn't want the word of God or the promises of God to take root in your heart and grow so that you could bear fruit for God's kingdom. So he comes in quick to try to undermine what God has just said. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? The first thing Satan said to Eve was, did God really say, right? He tries to undermine God's word. He tries to call into question God's character and his purpose and plan for our lives. And he uses the same tools every time. He uses the lust of the eye. We see something that we want. He uses the lust of the flesh. We have a desire that we want to have fulfilled right now. And he uses the pride of life. Those three things, that arrogance, that pride, that I don't need God, I don't need, those three things he uses to try to pull us away from the work that God wants to do in our lives. So right after this, chapter four, verse one of Matthew says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, how's that for a natural response to a specific situation? If you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, you would be hungry. If you fasted for probably most of us, 24 hours. You'd be hungry, but 40 days and 40 nights. Is it legitimate for Jesus to be hungry in this situation? 
Absolutely, there's no wrong, there's no sin associated with being hungry. Many of the desires, the natural desires that we have are not wrong in and of themselves, but they become wrong when we try to satisfy them in sinful ways rather than in accordance with God's word. So Jesus was hungry. Verse three says, now, when the tempter came to him, who is the tempter? It is Satan. He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. What's he doing there? He's calling into question the very thing that God had just said. God had said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan's like, well, you know, if you really are the son of God, how about you prove it? Or some would argue that that word if could just as easily or possibly more appropriately be translated since. Well, hey, since you're the son of God and all, it doesn't change the meaning or the intent of the passage. What he's saying is, okay, yeah, you're the son of God, right? Okay, cool. Why are you hungry then, dude? If you're the son of God, why are you hungry? You, you haven't eaten for 40 days. There's some rocks right there. You can just make some bread out of that, right? You're the son of God. Why not? Go ahead. Do it. Do it. Do it. Right? I mean, that's what's going on here. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, Jesus didn't have to pull out his scroll and say, huh, let me find this, right? He didn't have to Google it. He didn't have to say, oh, what, what do I need to say to this one? No, the graphe had already become logos in his heart and was ready to become rhema as it came out of his mouth. You understand what I'm saying? And so Jesus took the graphe that he had already learned and found that in the logos, the divine expression within his being and spoke it into the specific situation with which he was confronted, thereby making it the rhema of God. And when he did that, when he drew that sword out of its sheath and struck the enemy with it, we see that the enemy had to relent. He gave up on that tactic. He tried another. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. See, Satan can quote scripture too but he misapplies it. He says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. I want you to see what Jesus didn't say to him. Jesus didn't say, well, I think. Jesus didn't say, well, my friend said. What does Jesus say? It is written. Again, he says, it is written. It's not about his opinion. It's not about the opinions of other people or of the news media or of Oprah Winfrey, nothing against Oprah, whatever, or anybody else. But he turns to what God has written, what God has said. And he says, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I want you to pause for a second. 
Did Satan have the right to offer all of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? He did. Why? Because he is the prince of this world. Because at that time, this world and everything in it was under his jurisdiction, right? He could have given Jesus all that. And and what he's offering Jesus isn't just all the kingdoms of the earth. He's offering Jesus a shortcut to get to where he wants to be. He says, oh, you've come to save the world. I'll just give you the world, right? You're gonna sit upon David's throne, right? That's the thing. You're gonna be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. No problem. I'm willing to trade. I'll give you all that. All you gotta do is worship me. He's not just offering him a shortcut. Satan was offering Jesus a way out. He was saying, you don't have to die. You don't have to go to the cross. All you gotta do is worship me. And all of this can be yours. You see, Satan will offer you exactly what you think you want if you'll just go about getting it the way he wants you to. But the problem is he's a liar and a thief and he comes just to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So you do not want to enter into a bargain with somebody with that kind of reputation because he will double-cross you and the price will be far heavier than any you thought you would ever have to pay. See, Jesus would not be tempted out of the will of God. Jesus replies to him. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Amen? Now, three times Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, we all have our favorite books of the Bible, our favorite passages of Scripture, and and I want you to understand that in order to use a sword correctly, what do you have to do? You have to train with that sword, don't you? So in order to get this graphe to become the logos or the divine expression in our minds and in our hearts so that we can then pull out the particular scripture that we need in any given situation and use it as the rhema, which is the sword of the spirit, we've got to be familiar with it. So we need to read it, we need to understand it, and we need to memorize it so that we have it readily available to us at any moment when temptation comes. Because let me tell you, temptation doesn't generally come in convenient moments, does it? Temptation will sideswipe you while you're driving down the freeway like a Mack truck trying to change over two lanes of traffic. That's how temptation comes against you. And you need to be ready in that moment with the rhema of God readily available to you so that you can speak that into that situation. And I'm going to tell you, when you're dealing with temptation, I'm being very literal here. Don't just think about the word of God. Don't just meditate upon the word of God. When you're dealing with temptation, you speak the word of God. (laughs) I'm going to be ridiculous for a moment. You're in a situation, you find yourself someplace you didn't want to be. You're married, but your spouse isn't with you. And all of a sudden, you're sitting at this uh, table at this restaurant and somebody walks by who catches your eye and you make the mistake of taking a second look and they see that you took a second look. And so they turn around and they come back and they take a second look at you and things are moving in a direction that you know they ought not be moving in. Now in that moment, what would happen if instead of flirting with that person, you looked at him and you said, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
What do you think is going to happen in that situation? They're going to flee from you. They're going to think you're crazy, but it still has the desired effects. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's something about speaking forth the word of God. The Bible says if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that he will lift us up. The Bible tells us to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, too many people want to just say, oh, well, if I resist the devil, he'll flee from me only if you first submitted yourself to God, right? So we need to have God's word hidden in our hearts. What does Psalm 119.11 say? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Are you struggling with sin? Do you face temptations from any variety of lusts of the eyes or lusts of the flesh or the pride of life? Listen, I'm gonna tell you, the way you combat that sin is by getting the word of God in you so that when you're tempted, the word of God can come out of you. Amen? That is where our power lies in God's word, not just read, not just believed, but spoken and believed in our lives. The rhema of God, amen? There are so many things that I could say about the word of God. His word is a lamp unto our feet, right? And a light unto our path. His word is honored by him above even his name. The word of God, we're told in Hebrews, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the soul and the spirit. And when we speak God's word into the situations in our lives, into the temptations and the trials that we face, then we are wielding a mighty weapon, a weapon that was given to us by God himself and a weapon that we have been instructed in the use of. Turn with me one last time to Joshua chapter one. Joshua was a warrior. Joshua was a man who understood what it was to enter into battle. He'd been fighting most of his adult life. And when Moses, the servant of God, died, it was Joshua that God called upon to lead the children of Israel. And when he called upon him to lead the children of Israel, he gave him some very specific instructions. In Joshua chapter one, starting in verse five, he says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all the law of Moses my servant, which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law, what is that? 
That's the writings. That's the graphe, right? This book of the law. Now that's in Hebrew. Graphe is Greek. So don't think you're going to look up this passage and find the word graphe, but it means the same thing. The writings or the book. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, you need to keep the word, the graphe, in your mouth. In other words, it should be coming out of your mouth. What does that become? When it's coming out of our mouths, that's what? Rhema, right? But you shall meditate in it day and night. If we're meditating in it, if we're thinking about the divine expression, what is that? That's going to be the logos, isn't it? So right here in this passage, we have the implications of both the graphe and the logos and the rhema. It's where it comes from, the graphe, what it is, the logos, and what we do with it, right? The rhema. It's how we use it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So many of us as believers these days are walking around as though we were defeated. Why? Because we don't have the word of God coming out of our mouths. We haven't picked up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God with which we are to engage the enemy in battle. If you find that you are being beaten down by temptation and that you're giving in to temptation over and over and over again, I want to ask you a question. Have you been allowing the word of God to come out of your mouth in those situations? If you haven't, give it a try. Get the word of God in you. You know what areas of sin you struggle with, right? You do. You know where temptation beats you about the head and shoulders on a daily basis. You know what is the weight that bears down on you and what is that sin that so easily besets you. I don't need to tell you what it is. I could give you a list and that list would probably find a home in in each and every person at one point or another in this place, right? We know what we struggle with. So go find scriptures that relate to that struggle. Commit those scriptures to memory so that when that temptation comes against you, you can speak the truth of God into that situation and the enemy will flee from you because you'll be able to say, it is written. It is written. Amen? It is written. I I, I love some of the older songs that we used to sing back in the 1980s in the church. Some of you may remember them, but so many of them were simply scriptures set to music. And they may not have made the best songs, but they sure were a great way to memorize the word of God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, right? When temptation comes against you and you're tempted to have lustful thoughts or to engage in looking at things you ought not be looking at or doing things you ought not do, what if you were to say, it is written, God has created in me a clean heart. Amen? Or as Job said, I have made a covenant with mine eyes not to look upon a maiden, right? So there are verses that you can memorize and that you can include in your personal arsenal. You see, I like what Dr. David Jeremiah said about this book. He said, this is not your sword. This is an armory 
full of swords. There is a sword in here for every situation. And when you find yourself being tempted by Satan to fall into sin, you reach into that armory, you grab hold of a sword, which is the rhema of God, you pull it out and you go to war against that sin. This, my friends, is a weapon of mass instruction. Amen? And we are to become familiar with it so that we can put it in our hearts and make use of it when we face down the enemy of our souls. Amen? God has given us victory, and he's equipped us for battle. It's time for us to engage. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for equipping us so very well for the battle. Lord, we thank you for the full armor of God with which we will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We thank you for the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema, the expressed word, the spoken word of God. Allow it to live in our hearts and to come out of our mouths and call to our minds exactly the weapon we need in each situation of our warfare. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us for the mercy that we have received through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I'd like us to pause for a moment, every Christian be praying in this moment. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, a lot of what you said doesn't make sense to me, or maybe it does, but, but you know what, I don't know whether or not that's really my armor to take because I don't know whether or not I truly belong to Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to explain the gospel to you in very simple terms. Here's what it comes down to. Every one of us has done the wrong thing in one place or another in our lives. Every one of us has sinned, okay? and fallen short of the glory of God or the perfection of God. In other words, nobody's perfect. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things that were wrong. But we need to recognize that while the wages of sin, in other words, what sin earns is death, God has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to give us the gift of eternal life. The Bible tells us that if we will believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he died for our sins and that if we will confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, in other words, that he is our master and our owner, that we will be saved. The Bible tells us whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John three sixteen, Jesus said it himself, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, that means anybody who believes in him, will not die, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That everlasting life, the forgiveness of your sins, it's available to each and every one of us this morning. All we have to do is repent of our sins, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and confess that he is our Lord and Savior. And if we'll simply do that, the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus is yours for the asking this morning. If you're here today and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to know that your sins have been forgiven and that you're going to have eternal life when you die, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right now and say, you know what? I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you want to make that commitment to him, Lord, you know our hearts. Lord, you know that we need you. Lord, work in our lives today and accomplish your purpose. Help us, Lord, to take up the sword and be ready for the battle that lays in store for us and help us, Lord, to fight as you have called us to fight, to live as you have called us to live, to love as you have called us to love and to bring glory and honor to your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.